The text for the sermon this afternoon is the word of God as it has been summarized by the church in Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You can find that on page 522 of the Book of Praise. In the last Lord's Days, the Catechism taught us what kind of Redeemer we require. Lord's Day 6 will tell us what the Bible says about why and then from where we have learned all of these things. Lord's Day 6, question and answer 16. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who is himself a sinner cannot pay for others. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. But who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. And finally, from where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later, he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and the prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. After the sermon, we'll respond by standing and singing together hymn 35, stanzas one, two, and four, or two, one, and four, whatever we choose. Brothers and sisters, the sermon I have chosen to read this afternoon was written by the late Reverend W.W.J. Van Owen, who was taken to be with the Lord in 2013. Reverend Van Owen preached in the Canadian Reformed Churches for over 40 years. He was very involved in the editing and publication of the first edition of the Book of Praise, and he was a part of bringing about our theological college. The sermon today focuses on the final question and answer of Lord's Day 6, question 19, which we will repeat here. From where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and the prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, In the previous question and answers, we were allowed to confess glorious things concerning our Lord and Savior. We confessed that in him, we have received all the blessings of salvation that we need and that we are allowed to enjoy. In and through him, we see the sense of life. In and through him, we look beyond the grave into the life that never ends. He has been given to us and made unto us and proved to be wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now we have to answer the question, how do you know all of this? From where do you get this knowledge, this assuredness? With this question, we also make the transition to the next Lord's Day, to the question about faith, what it is, what it does, and from where it gets its strength and effectiveness. The basis for that next question and answer, and actually for all of the rest of the Catechism, is laid in the present question and answer, from where do you know all of this? This is an important question, for only when the source from which we derive this knowledge proves to be trustworthy 
Only then can we, can we maintain our boast and continue in the confidence and joy of which we were assured in the preceding questions and answers. In answer to our question, we are pointed to God as the only source and the revealer of that wisdom, salvation, sanctification, and redemption. For the answer reads from the Holy Gospel. One thing strikes us here right away, and that is this, that we speak of the whole word of God in the Old Testament as the gospel. Yes, also the New Testament comes into view, but primarily we refer here to the Old Testament. Certainly we also speak of the fulfillment, and the fulfillment is described in the New Testament, for there it is described how God fulfilled his promises. But how could we know that what we read in the New Testament is the fulfillment of God's promises, if we had not learned what those promises are from the Old Testament. The Catechism speaks of paradise, the holy patriarchs and prophets, and the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And this all is contained in the first two-thirds of the scriptures. All of this we speak under the title, The Promise of the Gospel. Thereby, all the scriptures are summarized and characterized as the promise of the gospel, the glad tidings of redemption. And that's how we are to read the Old Testament. That's how we are to understand everything that we read in the books of Moses, in the prophecies of Isaiah, in the book of Joshua, in the Psalms, in the prophecies of Ezekiel, and more. Let us never forget that, beloved. Whatever we read in the Old Testament is the glad tidings of our Lord Jesus Christ, how God gave the promise and how he worked towards the fulfillment of that promise. Also in the Old Testament, we see God's wisdom we see how he worked his plan for salvation, how he did everything to sanctify his people and to redeem them from the power of the evil one. Sometimes it might be difficult to understand precisely what the Lord wants to tell us in specific passages of the Old Testament. Sometimes we do not understand why certain actions or events are mentioned and what they have to do with the central promise of the gospel. This is why continued study of God's word is so necessary. We summarize the whole contents of the Old Testament under the title, The Promise of the Gospel. God first published these glad tidings himself, and then he had them propagated, passed on by patriarchs and prophets. He showed their meanings and importance through sacrifices and other ceremonies until the fulfillment was reached in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In our Belgic Confession, we confess that God, out of the special care that he had for us and for our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets, to commit his revealed word into writing. Frequently, we may wonder why certain things have not been revealed to us. We would have loved to know more about Abraham, or perhaps about the time between paradise and the flood, or more about David, or many more persons and events. But the Lord withheld these things from us. He revealed everything that is necessary for us to know for our salvation, and for a life that is pleasing to him. And when he withholds certain information from us, it is clear that we did not need that. Sometimes the question has been asked, what would happen if some writings, for example, of the Apostle Paul, were, st were still to be discovered, or other writings of Isaiah or another of the prophets? Would we add those writings to the 66 books of scripture that we currently acknowledge as having been divinely inspired? It is possible that more writings, for example, of the Apostle Paul could be discovered somewhere. We know for certain and we can conclude this from the two letters to the Corinthians that we have, that he wrote at least four letters to that church. Our first and second Corinthians are actually the second and fourth letter to the Corinthians. If such writings were discovered in the future, 
they could be very helpful in helping us understand our first and second Corinthians better because then we would know which words of the apostle the Corinthians reacted to in response to which he wrote them again. We would not, however, add such writings to the canonical books that we have and that the church has had ever since the first century after Christ. If more had been necessary unto salvation and if more had been essential to the message of the gospel, the Lord would not have left his church without them for so many hundreds of years. God saw to it that the gospel that he spoke in paradise was passed on from generation to generation, and that promise is contained in all the scriptures, also the scriptures of the Old Testament. In the previous question and answer, we stressed already that the redemption must come from above, from God. It was God who made our Lord Jesus Christ to be wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We find the same here in this 19th question and answer. It is God who first gave the promise of the gospel. It is God who had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and the prophets. It is God who had it foreshadowed by the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. And it is God who finally fulfilled it in his only begotten son. The salvation is God's work from the very beginning to the very conclusion. The Lord our God is therefore not to be blamed that so often his people go astray or that there are so many who reject the salvation that he has worked. The Lord our God is not to be blamed that so many among his people in the days when the Lord Jesus was on earth did not recognize him as the one in whom the promise was fulfilled. He came to his own, the Apostle John wrote, but his own received him not. He was the light, but many of his people preferred the darkness rather than the light. It is never God's fault, beloved, when his children, the co-heirs with Christ, become disobedient and stray away from the path of the covenant, thus missing the fulfillment of the promise. It is not God's fault if we walk around in uncertainty and doubt, not realizing the riches that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. God never left his children without the riches of the promise. Immediately after the sorry fall of man, he came, giving hope to the man and the woman who had given themselves into the power of the evil one. He made sure that they would never have to doubt his mercy or love, his forgiveness and faithfulness. In all sorts of ways, God continued to accompany man with, his, with the riches of this promise. What else could God have done to ensure that his people would recognize the Redeemer once he appeared at the end of the age? The Lord Jesus, however, had to compare God's people with a tree that had been well taken care of, but remained fruitless and barren. The Catechism states here that God first revealed the promise of the gospel in paradise. This is a great comfort, for it means that the Lord God immediately came with his mercies. As soon as man had fallen, the promise was there. For this reason, it is also of utmost importance that we take literally what the Lord God reveals in those first chapters of the Bible. As soon as people start to doubt the historical accuracy of the account that we find in the first part of Genesis, they also lose the comfort of the promise. If creation was not completed in seven days, if the fall itself was no real history, and if the speaking of the serpent was no real occurrence, then it's also doubtful whether God spoke to man immediately after the fall. And then everything that followed after the history of redemption hangs in the air and may be untrustworthy. We shall not go further into this at this moment, but confine ourselves to pointing this out. God himself came to man already while he was still in paradise, 
It was not so that the Lord waited with giving the promise until after man had been expelled from the beautiful garden. No, right then and there, he spoke of the seed of the woman, giving the promise of redemption. Right then and there, in paradise lost, God spoke of paradise regained. He assured man of the continuation of his mercies and of the realization of his counsel, his eternal plan. Paradise belongs to our history, beloved, our real history, and thus guarantees that the Lord God will bring to perfection that which he began. Strictly speaking, as soon as man had fallen, the paradise period came to an end. Yet the Lord gave the promise of the seed of the woman right there and then, before man was expelled. He was not sent out into a world that had become hostile without comfort or assurances. The redemption that was promised is a redemption that will bring back the original blessedness without the possibility that could ever again be lost. To that first word spoken already in paradise, God basically added, basically never added another element. The promise was elaborated on, it was worked out, it was made clear step by step, but something new, no, something new was never added. All of God's children throughout the ages, right from the moment of the fall onwards, knew what they could expect. They could base themselves on everything that the promise had given. God spoke of enmity between the woman's seed and the seed of the serpent. It was an enmity which he made to be there. If he had not done this, if he had not maintained this enmity, would there have been enmity between us and the evil one? All of mankind would have been on the side of the serpent. Oh yes, there would have been lots of fighting. There would have been permanent discord, for the realm of the evil one is a realm in which each and every one lives for himself and acts for himself. It's a realm where everyone begrudges everyone else everything. There is, says our God, no peace for the wicked. This will be one of the torments that will be experienced in hell. The total isolation, the total absence of any bond, the consummated selfishness, which will find no fulfillment at all. The only bond that is common is the bond of hatred. But God, in his mercy, put enmity between the woman and her seed on the one hand, and the serpent and its seed on the other hand. And so we do live in a constant condition of war. But in this war, we are standing and fighting on the side of the victor. For God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And thus we may sing, if we are on God's side, against us can be none. Yes, many are against us and can be against us, but they will never be able to overcome those who are on the side of the seed of the woman. God gave hope to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. They may then not have fully understood the riches of the promise, yet they put their hope and their trust in it. I have received a man from the Lord, Eve said when her son was born. And although she was disappointed in her first son, yet they kept going and kept having their hope in the promises of God. And so did the believers who came after them. Yes, all those, Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, all the patriarchs, all the saints, all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but they held on to the promise, embracing from afar the riches that the promised Redeemer would bring. They confessed that they were strangers and sojourners on the earth, but they kept looking. Abraham, the Lord Jesus said, longed to see my day, and he did see it. When reading the Old Testament, we read of wars and oppression, we read of obedience and apostasy, we read of sacrifices and famines, we read of earthquakes and blood, we read of sins 
and of forgiveness. But the key to understanding all of it is the promise that God gave us in paradise. Christ is the summary of every age and every period in history and of every part of the scriptures. One important key to understanding the Old Testament is what we read in Revelations 12, where the Apostle John sees the dragon standing before the woman, ready to devour her child as soon as the child would be born. That's what we see throughout the entire Old Testament. There is the constant effort of the evil one to cause God's people to perish, so that nothing could come of the fulfillment of the promise given in paradise. There is the Pharaoh who tried to destroy the people by making every boy that was born to be drowned. There was Haman, the Agagite, who tried to destroy all the Jews in one day. No, he himself was not aware of the basic nature of his plans. He was out only to avenge himself on Mordecai and to enrich himself by having the possessions of the Jews confiscated. But he was an instrument in the hands of Satan to render the coming of the Redeemer impossible by destroying the people of God. It was not only by means of sword or death or by means of oppression that the devil tried to cause the promise to come to naught. Balaam tried another method, seduce God's people and make them mix with the ungodly world, engage them in the immoral practices of the heathen nations and so alienate them from their God and from his grace. Satan knows that no salvation can be obtained by those who jump the fence and become conformable to the ungodly and unrepentant world. How bad it was when in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the children could not even speak the language of Judah the language in which the holy books were written, the language in which they could read of the promise given and that God's care for those to whom the promise had been spoken and God's care for those to whom the promise had been spoken. You see, beloved, if God had not put enmity, if God had not maintained that enmity, and if he had not reminded the people repeatedly of the golden promise given, none would have remained to inherit the promise. All would have chosen the side of the enemy and thus shared in the enemy's end everlasting perdition. And would it have been any different with us? Would we have been strong enough to stand and to stay on God's side? Would we have been strong enough to stand? Are you really ready and willing to stay on God's side no matter what happens, no matter what you will experience from the side of the evil one and his realm? From the scriptures, we learn how God's continued to hold his promise before the eyes of his people and to make them look forward to the fulfillment. It might not be easy reading when you go through the books of the prophets, but when you read those books, keep in mind that also therein the glad tidings are being proclaimed. When the Lord spoke through his servants to retain the loyalty of his own, what else is this then than his effort to bring his children back to obedience to him and to keep them out of the power of the evil one? When the Lord sends his servants, the prophets, to receive the fruits of the vineyard, what else is his purpose? other than that they shall acknowledge the Son, and through the Son, Him, the God of all grace and mercy, the God of faithfulness and redemption. When the Lord gave His regulations, His ordinances to His people Israel, and told them to bring sacrifices, to cleanse themselves, to celebrate the feasts that He ordained, and so on, He wanted them to see the difference that He was going to work for them in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When the lamb of the Passover was killed and when the blood was applied to the posts and the lintels of their doors, what else was this then repeating to them other than the promise given in paradise? When the Lord told them which sins should be punished and how, 
He wanted to keep his people pure and separate from the, from the world. Then he wanted to take measures to keep them on the side of the seed of the woman, encouraging them to fight against all uncleanness and to stay away from the practices of the surrounding heathen world. And thus the Lord kept alive the expectation and faith in the promise, making it clear to them and enabling them to recognize the Savior when he would appear. It was not his fault that when the promise was receiving its fulfillment in Christ, he came to his own, but his own did not receive them, did not receive him. They had a cover on their faces when they read Moses, the apostle wrote, and this prevented them from seeing the real meaning of the scriptures. God, however, proves to be trustworthy, and his word, spoken at the beginning of history, stood and was fulfilled. When the light started to shine throughout all of history, the darkness could not overcome it. The law was given through Moses, the Apostle John wrote. Grace and truth have come in Christ. That is not a contrast. It's not an opposition between law and grace. What the Apostle means is this. The grace and truth which the Old Testament promised and pictured, the reality of all the shadows, the realization of all the promises that were presented to God's people in the ceremonies and sacrifices of the Old Testament, this realization came in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus we know that the promise will find its final fulfillment in the end, when all power and influence of the seed of the serpent shall have been removed from this earth. From where do you know all of this about the Lord Jesus Christ, about his work, his redemption, and the manner in which he has obtained all of this for us? In other words, from where do you know how you are delivered from your sins and misery? From the Holy Gospel the glad tidings of deliverance. Remember this, beloved, when you read the scriptures. It is the holy gospel, the glad tidings of your deliverance. Read the scriptures, therefore, diligently, regularly, with attention and with reverence. Read the scriptures in the family circle, but also when you are alone, and try to understand how here, in what you are reading, God's faithfulness to his word appears, how there you are urged to keep fighting on the side of the seed of the woman. Also see that when the Lord gives warnings and threatens with punishment, he shows his love and mercy. He does not want his children to go over to the side of the enemy, and he makes clear what the consequences are if any of his own should do that. And in the midst of all your struggles to place your hope in God's promise and to stay away from all that belongs to the realm of the evil one, you may strengthen and comfort yourself with the assurance that is given by our Savior. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. These are the words of him who has been made to us by God, the supreme wisdom, the total righteousness, the complete sanctification, and the absolute redemption. Those are the words of him who went through battle and struggle to obtain the victory. Those are the words of him whom God spoke to our first parents already in paradise. He will crush the serpent's head. Through him, the trees will yield their fruit in paradise regained. True God and true and righteous man is he. God upheld the enmity of which he spoke in paradise, even though it brought his son to the cross. For in this way he fulfilled his promise, and in this way his word proved to be the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings. Go, tell it to the nations, so that they may come from east and west, from north and south, and travel with you towards the gates through which we shall enter into that eternal blessedness, which was and will be 
both God's gift to us and our service of thankfulness to him. Amen.